Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're talking about a famous gem that I'm shocked has never been covered on the podcast before. Right. And it's one of those things that, honestly, we could probably get seven different episodes out of if we really wanted to pursue some of these trails. But uh, we're going for two. So uh, we're talking about the Hope Diamond. And this will be the first of two parts on the Hope Diamond. Uh, just about everybody has heard of the Hope Diamond, but often once you start talking to them, you realize that its long and storied history kind of get gets mixed up in people's heads with other famous jewels. And sometimes people think it's the largest diamond in the world, which it is not. I believe that honor goes to the Cullinan Diamond. Uh, but what it is, the, is extremely rare because of its distinctive blue color. And it's fabled because it has a very long and twisting history. Uh, it may or may not have a curse on it, if you believe in such things. And it's kind of just become uh, a rock star amongst jewels. And everyone knows about it, but not always all the details and kind of what the real scoop is. Have you seen it before? I have not. I have. I have not. So here's the thing. If you take a small child to the Smithsonian and tell them they are going to see a huge diamond... They will be disappointed. Yes. They will expect a diamond as big as their head. Yeah. And the Hope Diamond is a diamond as big as a walnut. Yes. I have actually seen uh, videos from some of the curators, particularly Jeffrey Post, who will quote a couple of times in this, where he says that adults have that same reaction, too. Mm -hmm. Like, they come in expecting it to be this big mammoth thing, and then they're kind of like, oh, it's... I mean, it's big, but it's not what I was expecting. It's big, but it's so small. Yeah. So, uh, yes. And uh, I missed it because whenever I'm at the Smithsonian, there's always some other exhibit that is there that gets all of my attention. Mm-hmm. And I end up going, oh, it's closing time. And I end up having to run out the door. It's okay. But it's on my list. I got to see it. So the Hope Diamond is 25.6 millimeters long, 21.78 millimeters wide, and 12 millimeters deep. So about a walnut. Yep. It is not large. Uh Compared to things in the world that are large, it is quite large compared to other blue diamonds. It is 45.52 carats. Yeah, and that's actually a revised number. It had been believed to be 44 carats for a while. And then when they took it out of its setting at one point, they realized, like, oh, it's actually a little bigger than we thought initially. Its clarity grade is VS1. So according to the Gemological Institute of America's clarity scale, there are six categories of clarity, and then some of them are subdivided. So that gets a total of 11 different grades. VS1 is the fifth of these grades. It's the first level of what's called very slightly included, which means that crystal can be seen in the flat facets of the gem. So the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History says that this rating has been given because there's some whitish graining that's present inside the Hope Diamond, which itself is a very fancy dark grayish blue. Yeah, that's actually its uh, its cataloged color is fancy dark grayish blue. I want to call it very fancy because <laughs> it's a big honking diamond. It is. Uh, and there are many theories about... Um, its actual age and where it originated, but where it kind of um, 
gets put on the map is in the 1600s. And the first European that we know of to touch it was a man named Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. And he was born in Paris in 1605 to a map and chart maker. Uh, and he would become a world traveler and an extremely successful gem merchant. And at like just 15 years old, Tavernier had been traveling throughout Europe and had traveled as far as Persia by the time he was 28, which was really quite something at that time. In 1631, Tavernier made his first trip to Asia. He would eventually make six trips total throughout Asia, the next four being in 1638, 1640, 1643. This one involved a controversy with the Dutch authorities over some pay bills he was forced to surrender in transit. And 1657. And then in 1662, Tavernier got married. He married a jeweler's daughter. But his newlywed status did not keep him home very long because he left for his sixth Asian excursion in 1663. Uh, and on that one, he was headed to India and he made a stop in Persia. And by this point, he knew a lot of uh, the, you know, high up government officials in all of these places he visited because he was a gem merchant and he had really cultivated some... Uh, relationships with all of these people. Mining of diamonds in India goes back to at least 800 BCE. And by the 1600s, India was recognized as a major diamond center. So it's no surprise that Tavernier would travel there in search of gems. And while he was on this particular trip, uh, Tavernier came into possession of a diamond he described as being a beautiful violet color, 112 and 316 carats, vaguely triangular in shape and rather crudely cut. It's believed that the diamond came from the Kalur mine in Golconda, India. But the gem merchant never specifically said exactly how and where he got the gem. And in fact, many famous diamonds in history have come from the Kalur mine, including the Kohinoor and the Great Mughal Diamond. We actually have an episode on the Kohinoor that uh, Katie and Sarah did like two years ago. So if people want to read about another or listen to another famous diamond story with a curse, they all have curses. Uh, that's another good one. But this particular diamond came to be known as the Tavernier Blue. And when Tavernier returned to Europe in 1668, he sold it to King Louis XIV of France. So the Sun King could not resist its dazzling allure. Uh, and he sold it in a lot to him with more than a dozen other diamonds. This recut reduced the gem to 67 carats, and the diamond was placed in a gold setting for the king to wear on special occasions. At this point, the diamond came to be known as the Blue Diamond of the Crown, or more casually, as the French Blue. And the diamond remained part of the French royal jewels. Uh, and in 1749, King Louis XV had it set yet again, this time into a ceremonial setting for the Order of the Golden Fleece. And at that time, court jeweler André Jacquemin did the honors. The French Revolution is the next big event in the history of the diamond. The jewels from the French royal treasury, including the French blue, were handed off to the revolutionary regime in 1791 after Louis XVI and his queen, Marie Antoinette, tried to flee the country. In September 1792, while the royal family was imprisoned, the crown jewels were looted from their holding place at the Place de la Concorde over the course of several days. 
During that time, the French blue vanished. And there are lots of uh, theories on what happened to it and how it may have been fenced and made its way elsewhere. But like I said, we could have gotten seven episodes out of this. We could have done an episode just on Tavernier because he's very fascinating. Uh, but so the French blue kind of vanishes literally from the record for a while. And it's not until two decades later that it comes up again. And in 1812, uh, 20 years after it was stolen from France, after the French blue was stolen from France anyway, a dark blue diamond surfaced in London. And this diamond was in the possession of a merchant named Daniel Eliasson, and it was documented by a jeweler by the name of John Francillon. Francillon described the gem as weighing 177 grains. As one carat is the equivalent of four grains, this puts the weight of Eliasson's gem at roughly 45 carats. Smaller than the French blue, but still an unusual deep blue color. Although there wasn't solid evidence of the fact, and more on this will come later, many historians long believed that this was, in fact, the stolen French gem, conveniently resurfacing just after the statute of limitations on the theft would have run out. Yeah. And I, I also want to point out when we say it's roughly 45 carats, going back to that change in its weight that I mentioned before, it actually works out to like 44.25 or something, I think, if you do the math. Um, and while there's no paper trail of the purchase uh, or of any purchase from Eliasson, it's believed that King George Fourth of England actually acquired the stone. And there's a portrait of the king painted in 1822 by Sir Thomas Lawrence that shows uh, George wearing, among other accessories, a royal order of the Golden Fleece, so another similar to the ceremonial French setting, also set with a large blue gem. When King George died in 1830, he left behind considerable debt, and it's believed that the diamond was liquidated through private channels to settle part of the money that was owed. But at this point, it's still not called the Hope Diamond, but we're getting there. <laughs> um, so almost a decade after King George IV's death in 1839, there is mention once again of a large blue diamond in the records of a banker, uh, this time a man named Henry Philip Hope, and it is for him that the diamond is named. Uh, while the diamond is listed in Hope's catalog, its acquisition and origin are not included in the notation. So there's a lot of hazy changing hands that goes on. Henry Philip Hope died the same year his catalog of gems published, 1839. And a lengthy litigation battle was fought among his three nephews over his estate. Eventually, his nephew, Henry Thomas Hope, finally took possession of the Hope Diamond as part of a split-up of his assets. The gem stayed in the family, eventually passing to Henry Thomas Hope's grandson, Lord Francis Hope, the 8th Duke of Newcastle. And as a provision of this inheritance, uh, Lord Francis Hope was not allowed to liquidate any of the family estate without court permission. But uh, he had married a songstress wife who he wanted to keep in the style to which she had been accustomed. And he consequently, unfortunately, lived his life far beyond his means. And in 1901, he was able to attain permission from his sisters in the court to sell the Hope Diamond in an effort to mitigate this mountain of debt that he had accrued. Uh, and unfortunately, he divorced several months after that. So it would seem that once things got really tough, the marriage kind of soured. A London dealer was quick to purchase the diamond from Lord Francis Hope and was just as quick to then sell it to a New York jeweler, 
Simon Frankel of the firm Joseph Frankel & Sons, for $148,000. The diamond sat quietly under lock and key with the Frankels until they sold it to Salim Habib after the depression that followed the financial panic of 1907. And... After this, things move very quickly for the diamond. So Salim Habib put the gem up for auction in 1909, although it apparently did not sell then. And after that auction, it was purchased by a C.H. Rosenau, who in turn sold it to Pierre Cartier. And there is also in this stretch of the diamond changing hands so quickly, a little bit of a debate about whether Sultan Abdul Hamid owned the stone briefly. Uh, so it seems for a few years in the early 1900s, the Hope Diamond was really something of a hot potato. It just kept changing hands very, very quickly. Cartier had a business relationship with American heiress Evelyn Walsh McLean. He had sold her a 94.8 carat white diamond called the Star of the East when she was on her honeymoon in 1909. And Cartier showed the Hope Diamond to McLean while she was in Paris on another trip in 1910. But the society heiress was apparently not impressed with the stone setting. And there are also accounts that she was a little unsettled by rumors about the Hope Diamond being cursed. Uh, and we'll talk about those more later as well. But Cartier was really quite intent on selling this gem to McLean. He felt like she was the buyer for it. The story goes that Cartier had the stone reset and then brought it to the U.S. to loan to Mrs. McLean for a weekend. It was quite a sales pitch. I feel like I've seen this happen on sitcoms. Well, <laughs> when I was uh, thinking about it, it also made me think of when you do pet adoptions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just take the kitten home for the weekend. See how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've seen an I Love Lucy episode or something where she she gets a fancy diamond necklace that's to be borrowed and she doesn't want to give it back. Anyway, in Evelyn's autobiography, she wrote about that loner weekend for hours, that jewel stared at me, and sometime during the night, I began to really want the thing. Then I put the chain around my neck and hooked my life to its destiny for good or evil. And McLean's purchase of the Hope Diamond caused a sensation. It was written up in uh, newspapers, and it, they even described the manner in which it would be set and worn. And there's uh, an article in the New York Times from January 28, 1911, Reporting the sale and also saying the diamond will now be worn by Mrs. McLean as a head ornament arranged in a bandeau, the large stone being placed immediately in front and with other diamonds of lesser size studding the setting bands. So uh, it really was a big deal. Uh, people knew about this diamond already because it, it was so sizable and kind of famous and already had these curse uh, stories around it. So it, it was news making that similar to how if someone you know, spent $3 million on a famous piece of jewelry now, it would hit the news. <laughs> Just the royal baby swaddling made the news. <laughs> Evelyn wore the Hope Diamond frequently. It became her signature piece, and although she loved it, she was constantly getting warnings from both friends and strangers that her beloved accessory was really bad luck. This curse rumor had been around for a while, but it seems like it really picked up steam around the same time that it was changing hands in 1909. Uh, and Evelyn did experience some various tragic events in her life. Uh, in 1919, her son Vincent, who was quite young at the time, died shortly after being struck by a car outside the family home. 
1929, she and her husband Ned McLean separated uh, when he ran off with another woman. And Ned died uh, some years later in 1941 in a, sanator- in a sanatorium uh, from issues associated with alcoholism. And then uh, in 1946, Evelyn's daughter died of a drug overdose. So while she loved it... Uh, there were lots, she loved the diamond. There were lots of tragic things happening in her life. But she never blamed any of these tragic things on her beloved jewel. She said, quote, what tragedies have befallen me might have occurred had I never seen or touched the Hope Diamond. My observations have persuaded me that tragedies for anyone who lives are not escapable. I kind of love that she did that. Well, and I kind of... She said, don't blame the diamond. Well, and when you were talking about all these things that had happened to her, I kind of want to, like, counter with all the terrible things that happened to my grandmother. as She was a very modest person who had no hope diamond. Yeah. I mean, I think tragic things just happen to people. It's an unfortunate aspect of life. And it's easy to attribute those to the presence of a thing mm-hmm. and focus that as your the bad luck item that's causing them all. But... Uh, Sometimes bad things just happen. And she really seemed to love that jewel. I mean, there are movies of her wearing it that she took of herself. There are photo, almost any photograph of her features it. Uh, and she actually died the year after her daughter in 1947. She was 60, uh, and she had been wearing the Hope Diamond consistently for 36 years. And it was as a part of her jewelry collection that it was set in the pendant form surrounded by the smaller stones that it's recognized for today. So she stopped wearing it in the headpiece and began to wear it as a pendant. And uh, at some point, I would actually love to do an entire episode on Evelyn Walsh McLean because her life was mind boggling. I mean, there's even an incident where she allegedly tried to hawk the Hope Diamond for ransom money to get the Lindbergh baby back. Uh, she just she had a wild ride. She threw amazing parties. She was very fascinating. Uh, so she's certainly episode worthy. But uh, for the moment, this is where we're going to pause and end this first part of the Hope Diamond, because next we'll get into how it kind of became part of the Smithsonian collection and the curse that is allegedly on it and some interesting uh, scientific study that's been done on the diamond uh, in more modern times. But that's its sort of origin story. Uh, and we'll reference back to some of those because they come up in the curse discussion. Uh so, yeah, part two of the Hope Diamond will be coming next. I believe you may have some listener mail as well. I do indeed. This actually uh, was sent to us in a message on Facebook, and it is from our listener, Benjamin. And he says, I was really excited to see the topic for the recent podcast on Pluto. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the little guy. When I was 10 years old, I made friends with an elderly man on a camping trip. While all the boring grown-ups sat around talking about boring adult stuff, the elderly man told me stories about the stars and planets we could see that night. Then he told me a number of rather cheesy puns, mostly about crows. I found out on the ride home that he was actually a famous astronomer named Clyde Tombaugh. Yes, that Clyde Tombaugh, who, to reference it in case anyone listening doesn't recall, is the person who is credited with finding Pluto. We had a chance to hang out on a number of other camping trips, and I made sure my parents invited my new friend and his wife over for dinner as often as was possible. A few years later, Clyde shared the pictures of Voyager 2's Neptune flyby, explaining the science and new discoveries to many of us, blowing our minds. Then he told me a few more crow puns. (laughs) He was an incredibly kind... 
intelligent man, believed in UFOs and loved cheesy puns. I recently read that some of his ashes were included on board the New Horizons probe, so he'll actually get to visit his discovery in person. That's some pretty cool stuff. Uh, and then he includes some of the puns that Clyde told him. And all of this uh, does... Um, fall in line with things that I have read by Tombaugh's colleagues that he loved these kooky puns and was just a very sweet and really sharing man like he loved to talk about his work can you tell us one of the crow puns because I'm going to have to go google them otherwise they're funny are you ready yes what is a crow's favorite part of the sun what the chromosphere (laughs) what is a crow's favorite metal what chrome yeah and then what is the crow's favorite caveman Cro-Magnon? Word. <laughs> uh, so, which are so cute. Uh, and a lot of people have, or several people have written us about the Pluto episode and about uh, our comment that it's the only planet to have been demoted. And they're like, no, 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 there are others like Ceres and uh, they mentioned some others. And I want to do more research on it before we actually talk about that because there is some... Um, controversy, it seems, or just, you know, debate. I don't know if controversy is the right word. Even in the astronomy community about it, uh, including, like, I think, and I'm just uh, talking on the top of my head, so don't quote any of this as accurate, uh, but I think even, like, the first time it was reported, the person that discovered it thought it was a planet but reported it as a different heavenly body because he didn't know that it would meet any of those criteria yet. And so it's been a little bit confused, even though it was taught as a planet at in some uh, in the 1800s for a little while, so we've, we've gotten we've gotten letters. We're doing more research. Many, 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 many letters <laughs> about uh, other possible demoted planets. Yeah, many, many letters. Yeah, so we're not ignoring those. We just want to, uh, you know, make sure we have low information before we start talking about it. Yes. Uh, so that's the scoop. If you would like to write us, and I just love that people are excited about astronomy and astronomy history. Very excited about our demoted planets. Are things I super love. Uh, and if you want to write us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at mistinhistory uh, at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website, search for the word diamonds, and you'll get an article called How Diamonds Work. And it actually does include a section on famous diamonds that mentions the Hope Diamond, of course, because it is super famous. So if you would like to learn about that or almost anything else you can think of, you should do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.